Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller with Media Mavens Podcast. Here with my co-host, Joe Pyrus. What's up, Joey? Hello, Sarah. Doing very well on this uh, what Thursday afternoon already. Yes. Wait, Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, gosh. Okay, yes. We're on Tuesday. You act like you've oh. been in the jungle for a month. You forgot which day it is. Yeah, is I know. That's me. <laughs> we, I'm super excited. Like, we're here today. Emiliana Rupa is a producer, TV host. She's done some amazing stuff with Nat Geo, Smithsonian Discovery. Emiliano, welcome to the show. You're literally calling in to talk to us on the podcast from the jungles right now, correct? I am. Thank you for having me. So, I'm so excited you're just calling us from a jungle right now. Okay, so we have so much to get into because we know you're a TV host, producer, love Nat Geo, love Discovery and everything. But let's just start with why are you down in the jungles right now? Because we started working on a team of biologists saving the Black Panthers and Jaguars, right? Yeah, so uh, I am. I'm working with a bunch of biologists all over the Mayan jungle, which stretches from the south of Mexico into Guatemala and Belize. We're basically working to expand jungle habitat for jaguars, which, as you know, are endangered, but have been a, a pretty successful kind of uh, reintroduction species. So through expanding the, the biosphere, many of these groups have kind of helped increase jaguar populations throughout the area. They are such beautiful creatures. Like I always see some of the posts on Facebook. And so, because I'm a cat person, so is my little sister. She's always posting these gorgeous black or huge black jaguars and black panthers and all, you know, these the black cats, you know, because they're, they're being hunted down. They're all in extinct and they're the most beautiful creatures. I mean, I know they're dangerous. I just want to hug one of them. But all the photos are that, you know, they've been rescued. They've been in protected habitats. I had no idea they were here in Mexico because I've been to Belize and Guatemala. So I didn't realize there was that big of a span. Are there a lot of these big cats down there right now? Are you guys just trying to reinduce them into this, you know, atmosphere to try to repopulate again? No, there's there's thousands of jaguars in Mexico. You know, Mexico's like the original jaguar country. It's like, you know, the ancient Aztecs and the Mayas, which lived thousands of years ago, have these beautiful depictions in their temples of the jaguars is a kind of a, a sacred animal. It's like so central to like Mexican culture and spirituality even. And there are a lot of cats. I mean, this is this is jaguar habitat. The main issue that uh, jaguars have been kind of in trouble is mostly cattle ranching. So as the jungle disappears for, for cattle farms, essentially, you know, a lot of the jaguar habitat has been kind of displaced. And so these, these cats have been kind of separated from this corridor, which which was their original kind of environment. It's been turned into like these little parcels. And so two things happen. One is their natural prey, which are usually tapirs and peccaries and smaller mammals, have disappeared under kind of like the impact of these environmental changes. So they have less food in the jungle. They have less space. So they've started attacking cows, sheep, goats from these ranches. And obviously the cattle ranchers, you know, they seek vengeance, so they'll they'll hunt down the cats. Hmm. So, but aren't they protected? Well, the cats are protected, though, right? They're technically protected by by federal law, but they're it's really hard to enforce in these areas. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So basically, it's these biologists fighting against time. One is to expand this this area, this, these biospheres, so that they can actually be protected and you know from illegal logging, from private sales, from the expansion of some cattle farms. And two is like basically trying to work out this human wildlife conflict. So trying to figure out how you can get these farmers to stop killing jaguars. And there's different means and different ways of doing that. But those are like the two main techniques. And then the third one is figuring out if you can rescue jaguars that are being sold on the black market, which is another issue, and reintroduce them into the wild. Those are the three. That's the trifecta of, of trying to save the jaguar here. It's just so heartbreaking where people are infringing. I mean, it is they were here first and they're such beautiful animals. But being on the black market, I get your cattle ranches, your livelihood, especially in Mexico. But there's got to be a more humane way to handle these situations. Now, two questions. You're with the Explorers Club right now. You're a photographer. You're working on, if I'm reading this right, banishing cultures, foods, rituals, conflict zones, everything for wildlife and everything for discovery, not geo. You're currently doing that. What made you take on this project with the Black Jaguars? So, And, and are you documenting all of this for, because I know you're a photographer and a yeah. producer, is this for a show or are you just putting time in to help a very serious cause with the animals? Yeah, I'm just kind of putting in time. And so, you know, just because it's been pandemic, because of the pandemic situation, I thought it would be good to get out of a city and and Into be in an area. Where, yeah, be in an area where you can you have a little bit of freedom to move and, and you're not putting anybody in danger. And you can also kind of, I felt I had the, the time and space this year to volunteer a bit of time and, and, and dedicate it to something that, that I really care about. And I love being in Mexico, I love the jungle, and I've always wanted to see a live jaguar. So I thought it was the perfect kind of time to be. Have here. you seen? And you've seen a few. You guys have rescued a few. Yeah. So there's there's two things. They're they're not rescuing jaguars. They really don't. The the whole thing is to kind of avoid them is to expand the area around them. But the thing that they're they're doing is they're tracking their movements. So to track their movements, you have to hunt down a jaguar with not to kill it, but to put it to sleep, put a tracking collar on it which is a device that sends out GPS data. And then they're able to kind of track their movements and figure out how effective their expansion of the biosphere is, where they're getting in trouble, all this kind of data that helps the biologists kind of plan for the future. So, so you end up dis- disturbing a few cats, but really in the service of, of saving them all. Well, that's amazing. Let me ask you this real quick. Oh. It seems that the biggest problem when it comes between humans and wild animals like this and others is that the fact that humans are encroaching on their habitat. And it seems there really right now hasn't been a, a happy mix between the two. Where do you see this going right now? Because we've seen it happen in Brazil. We've seen it happen right now in Mexico. Where, where do yeah. you see this going? Yeah, it, it's tough because, you know, on the one hand, obviously people, people live close to biospheres in general. Are these lower income communities? This is at least in Mexico. That's the case. You can't expect these people to sacrifice their their livelihood for what we want, right? We want to buy a biosphere. We want we want the Amazon, but it's it's asking a lot to say. Look, you know, you guys can't can't exist the way you do because it's threatening some, something that everybody else wants. So you really need to help the government to work with NGOs to help find alternative means, and that means. You know, for example, one of the main means of survival for a lot of the communities around the Maya biosphere is illegal logging. You know, all that wood goes to China. 
It's a huge market. You make a lot of money. But really, you know, these are forests that take hundreds of years to develop. So it makes no sense to turn these trees into paper, really, overall for the country, but for humanity as a whole. So you have to really uh, a moratorium on, on the sale of wood, right? But you have to compensate these people. And the government has ways to compensate them. So basically, there's programs that say, look, we'll rent this land from you at the same price or slightly higher than, than you would get from a year's worth of a legal log. And governments generally have, they have the, the, the power to do that. Very few other people do, maybe private individuals, but it's usually not as efficient. That's one way. Well, we figure it out. We, we kind of have to put a stop to stuff. And that's been really successful in, in Mexico. And, and same with the Jaguar thing. So if Jaguar attacks your, your cattle, what a lot of these cattle ranchers will do is they'll wait around for the Jaguar to come back and they'll, and they'll kill it. So instead, you have programs introduced that say, look, if a Jaguar has killed your cattle, we'll help you solve the problem. And when they call these organizations, they'll show up and they'll literally pay them for the lost cattle and try to either capture the Jaguar or find a means of, of kind of getting the Jaguar not to attack again. And there's different ways of doing that. From but that's, but that seems like it's a win-win. It's an ethical way. You're not killing off the species. You know, it's right. just not that eye for an eye thing and everything. So I think it's a lot more of an educational tool to let them know, don't kill these animals. Let us help you get them away. I mean, my, my simplistic viewpoint is put out cat food. Right. <laughs> Build a little perimeter build a little biosphere that gives them what they're looking for because they're just looking for encroaching the areas to feed so they don't starve to death and for shelter. So build that for them where it's safe so they don't cross over that line. But I know that's much more difficult than like what it sounds right now. How long have you been down there for in the jungles working with these guys? So I've been here, I've been kind of doing the the jaguar route as as I call it for about two months and a half, six, about eight, 10 weeks. Okay, let's get back to my stupid question because Joe rolled his eyes. Seriously, you're building these pens or these areas, these ecosystems with the biologists, tracking these beautiful animals. Why not, for lack of a better word, Mariano, put out cat food, put in areas where there is food and water and shelter for them? I just, there's too many. There's too many. And it's too hard to do. I mean, really, what these, these animals have evolved over, over millions of years to hunt and track down food. They need, they need, yeah. You, you can't just put out, I doubt they even like pre-made food, right? Like they need to hunt down tapirs and, yeah, and, and peccaries. But the good news is that literally if you, if you give a break and stop illegal logging in these areas, in just a few years, it starts re- recuperating. It's, an, it's incredible. And uh, nature has this, this amazing way of fixing itself. And forests have an amazing way of regenerating themselves. So it's just about kind of curbing that extreme extraction of resources. And that's doable. It's not, it, it's not our destiny to end up in like a Mad Max world, you know? There's, yeah. there's, there's ways around it. Yeah, so let's talk about, so prior to the Explorer, you were at hosting for Discovery and Nat Geo. Are you still working with them on projects or are you, were you just there to host some of their shows that they already had scheduled out or how was that? That was amazing. So uh, at National uh, Geographic, I wasn't a host, but I was a, a director and producer. And I worked on, on a lot of really brilliant, interesting series that had to do with conservation. So I worked on series, you know, about like bats, about uh, sharks, 
you know, we filmed underwater, we filmed in mountains, we filmed in jungles. That was just an incredible experience all over the world, seeing how biologists work, how conservationists work, learning about different animal behaviors and different habitats and stuff. That was so cool. And that, that ended basically because I, I was asked to host, uh, co-host a discovery show with, with my good friend, an explorer and fellow member of the Explorers Club, Justin Fornell. And so when he called in and he told me that they wanted to do the show with us together, I was like, man, this is brilliant. We just get to hang out and do what we do anyways, we just do it on camera. I said yes. And I, st- and I, I kind of put a pause on uh, directing and producing a uh, wildlife series and jumped on Unexplained and Unexplored. One thing I, I'm really very impressed by, and, and I got a chance to watch this, was War Tourist. And you put yourself in a lot of dangerous situations being in, I, I believe it was Iraq at the time. Why? Why? I mean, a lot of people wonder why these war correspondents put themselves in that line of fire. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm so glad you got to watch that. Thank you. Thank you for watching um, War Tourist. You know, I'm not a war journalist. That was kind of, it was one year where I, all of this news was coming out about ISIS and kind of like how evil some of the, some of the stuff they were doing was. And I just couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't really even believe it, right? Like killing journalists, like just the extreme stuff they were carrying out and filming and that was being distributed online. And I was like, I just have to see if this is real just for me to understand that something that extreme actually exists. And yeah, I, I just I just had to understand it. And uh, it was very intense. I was very lucky to leave kind of without uh, extreme PSD or extremely scarred, but it, it definitely marked me. And I can tell you just from spending time with the journalists who do stay for years, that there's something that attracts journalists to, the, to, to that kind of adrenaline, that extreme environment on a deeper level, like, of course, they want to tell the truth and they want to help reveal what's what's going on in these areas to bring light to it, right? But on a deeper level, I think a lot of them are kind of in a weird way, they become adrenaline junkies. Maybe they start out wanting to tell the story and then nothing else compares to being in danger 24 hours a day. I think that's my theory about it. It's, it's not that they don't appreciate the the gravity of the situation or that they're not uh, or that they're disrespectful to it, but that their their bodies are like rewired. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I get it completely. I mean, I understand that from a point of a journalist, journalist that you you get like that, and they almost become like the soldiers themselves who are addicted to the adrenaline. But was there a time in in making that that year there that you felt that your life was severely in danger and that you may not wake up to see another day? Yeah, it was. It was the last day I was there. What, what had been happening was that the ISIS had basically been targeting journalists and all the Iraqi federal military, who we were being escorted by, had all journalists in these kind of safe houses. So you'd sleep in the safe houses and then during the day you'd be taken on these, I hesitate to call them tours, but that's basically what it was because they, they want, wanted you to see how their effort was being successful. And some soldiers privately kept telling us, you guys have to be careful. We're a bit nervous because they're hunting journalists because they want to make the news, right? Because it's all about controlling the narrative. And that day, two ISIS soldiers basically murdered two, two of the guards at a, at a checkpoint. They put on their clothes and they snuck in and they were 
you know, 20 meters from us with the intention of killing us. And, and one of them, one of them was, was strapped with a, with a suicide vest, which is something you, you, you see in the film actually mm-hmm. with the intent to, with the intent to kill us. And that's when I said, you know, I've seen enough. I don't, I don't want to be here. And I was shocked that all the other journalists were the ones who really seasoned veterans, really seasoned war journalists were, it didn't, it didn't affect them to the point of wanting, of of making them want to leave, you know, for them, it was like, this is, this is what I'm here for. Is this what made you move? I mean, from that, I mean, that was prior to um, Nat Geo. I know you did a thing for Smithsonian on migrations down in Mexico and, you know, you worked on some stuff down there with nomadism, the theatrical version. But was this why? Because when you realize, okay, this is it. My life's not worth putting on the line after you've made that. Is that why you moved into conserving, you know, the animals, conservation for the planet? Is that what made you in your head kind of decide to switch over? Yes. But I had the same trouble kind of after coming back from, from Iraq and Syria. I was, I was the same. I kind of been through something so extreme that my body had been rewired and I needed something really intense to keep my focus up. So I had to figure out what can I do that's as interesting as what I did without having to, to go to a war zone. It's really tough, right? On a personal level, but that's also meaningful and that is, is of, of some service and some, some utility to, to other people. And I found that weirdly enough, conservation is like biologists are like as hardcore as soldiers like they're the most hardcore people i know they spend you know weeks in like these inhospitable places fighting off snake bites you know all kinds of ticks and mosquitoes and extreme animals venomous animals exotic animals in these extreme environments you get the same thing right? Except you're doing something equally useful, which is essentially helping further conservation efforts. What about the, um, the project you worked on with the Smithsonian? Were you like, was that a little bit more low key? Because I know there's a lot of controversy down in Mexico when it kind of did think, was it epic migrations or in Mexico? What was that about? Was that just, a, was it kind of a, another adrenaline rush? Or was it something a bit more humanity focused? No, that was actually about animal migrations. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a project we did. The Smithsonian really wanted to have like an epic wildlife film that showed mass quantities of animals migrating from place to place. And Mexico is, you know, it's one of the most biodiverse countries on the planet. So it has these migrations of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of turtles, hundreds of thousands of flamingos collecting together hundreds of thousands of like underwater species like mobulas and crab and stuff like that. So we ended up filming for a year, 14 species in 12 different environments, everything from like volcanic deserts to underwater. We filmed like gray whales with their calves. We filmed a site where 40,000 flamingos build nests so that their eggs can hatch. And they can teach their, their young ones to fly. Millions and millions of butterflies waking up after three months of dormancy so that they could return to Canada by crossing the States. We filmed all kinds of just amazing, amazing animal behavior in, in these kind of mass settings. I think that was a, a great success. It did really, really well. And it's playing on TV. And for me, it was important to give a different narrative to what people's perception of Mexico is, right? Which is like, you know, it's either just 
very touristy or or it's you know the headlines of violence and so i I really like the idea of showing that you know that there's this other amazing beautiful side to mexico full of wildlife full of animals full of these like there's a whole ecosystem down there that people don't i mean i have never been around flamingos but there's a sound like there's such a beautiful ecosystem down there from you know whales turtles to these animals, to these big cats down there. And it seems like you spend most of your time down there in Mexico, really making a difference and shooting and doing these movies and these Discovery Channel and these episodes all about these animals. Is this something that you're going to continue doing? So I know you're with Explorer right now. And I feel right. like everything you've been doing on your photography, you know, you're writing, you're developing these shows is all based on animals and conservation is that something that you're going to continue doing down the road and is it going to be in mexico or are you going to look to kind of move off to something new once the jaguar situation gets under control yeah i think once the pandemic situation starts getting a bit better and i, and I finished the story on jaguars which i'm nearing the end of that chapter i'm going to move on i'll always come back to mexico i'll always continue but i'd love to explore other areas the world is a large magical wonderful uh, place and there's a lot to see where so, where are you going to head to next and what's your next So I just haven't thought it through, but I have the thing that's always like calling my name is Japan. And I don't know why, but it's just, it's just there. And that's somewhere I really want to go. I don't know what my objectives are yet. It's just something that's calling my name. But in terms of actual projects, I'm looking at stuff in Indonesia, specifically Sumatra, high concentration of tigers, high concentration of elephants, Mm -hmm. just exotic, bizarre, wonderful place. I'm developing some projects there right now. Uh, with, with the photography of a special like you do, as a former photographer myself, is is a lot of it hurry up and wait, and and you have to let the shot come to you. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right. I mean it, it's it, it's just infinite waiting time. You know what what you do to be a little more efficient is you talk to biologists and you figure out like what are my best chances within this kind of window to get these certain types of behaviors. For example, what, one of the things I've, I've been wanting to do is photograph a live jaguar, right? This is so, so difficult. One, they're nocturnal, right? Two, they avoid humans at, at all costs, right? So then three, they move quickly through the jungle. So they're always migrating looking for food. There isn't always a specific place where you can wait for them. You can sit around in the jungle and maybe, maybe you'll get lucky, you know, in a few months of waiting time and you get a picture, but it's unlikely. So talking with biologists and then talking with these guys who used to hunt jaguars who now work for biologists to help them track them down. These are guys who turned from being jaguar hunters to jaguar conservationists. I figured out a bunch of behaviors. One of the things is there's a month a year where there's not that much water and all the jaguars, all the wildlife goes to these pools of water to drink. It's okay, you have a location. And then we figured, these guys know, they figured out that jaguars don't, because they're always looking out for, for something that potentially hurt them, they're looking around at ground level, right? So if they sniff human, but they're at ground level, they're, they're not going to get close. So all you need to do is elevate about four feet. They're not going to attack you, right? But they're not going to notice you. So four feet up next to a pool of dry water in the right season with camera that has a quick flash or an infrared camera, you can get your shot. And you can probably do that in, in the window of about a week. So it's all kind of like logistical stuff, like you said. And then it, then it's the waiting game, right? Then it's the waiting game and, and the luck game because you don't know. You never know with wildlife. What are you going to do with like, the elephants and the tigers in Indonesia? Because I just think that's a fascinating project. And I know there's so much controversy 
between the rhinos and the elephants and the poachers and stuff. Are you going to go down there to look at the migration of them or how to move them to safer areas? Or are you not sure until you get there how you're going to handle that? And are you going to have a team of biologists with you over there like you do here? I'm looking at basically shadowing an anti-poaching unit. Nice. So you're going to be literally saving animals. We'll see. I certainly hope so. They're totally up for it. You know, it's amazing what these guys do. It's kind of a combination of a lot of the other stuff I did. So it's kind of conflict zony, right? Because it's it's quite dangerous yeah. it's to deal with people who are tra- trafficking wildlife, especially of this this nature, tigers and elephants and stuff like I that. I think it's important though, because I think we read about it. We hear about all these horrible situations in South Africa on the game reserves. We don't really hear and see it anywhere else in the world because South Africa is known for this stuff. So we just... Right hear of that but they don't really they do the best they can with limited budgets and resources but nobody's really taking at least i could be wrong a bigger stance to go after these anti-poaching organizations i think they do need more support because they're the ones that are out there that are saving these animals from all these poachers that are just poaching them for money for sport like i'm so anti-poaching like i hate when i see this happen you see these people that one dentist out of south africa who they lured cecil who was a protected like national treasure in one of the gaming reserves and like he had like hate mail death threats he had to move and i'm like he deserves to be thrown in jail or shackled down that you just you just don't this is not humane i understand there's a whole food chain but like i love that you are actually start an anti-poaching unit on these majestic animals in other parts of the world because people overlook that it's going on over there because they're so focused on only one part which is a big tourist spot so i love that you're doing this other i mean i'm not saying whether you're doing other in south africa they all need the help and support but i love that you're doing this in an area that is not as exposed in the news and globally that needs the help i hope i can be helpful and also like what a what a beautiful place to spend some time in you know i mean sumatra is paradise on earth in its own way so it's also you know it's it's a privilege for me also to be there and i hope that i can help tell their story in a way that's that's meaningful and has some impact we'll have to see when are you planning on releasing this story on the jaguar and where is it going to be released there's two parts to it one it's going to be on uh through discoveries various you know social media channels and their main website and stuff and and then the second story is going to be on atlas obscura i'm going to be kind of a long focused piece on the work of one particular biologist who's who's this kind of like a maverick biologist in the the south of mexico kind of single-handedly saving the biosphere and has been working with jaguars for a long time really fascinating kind of eccentric character i spent uh, two weeks in the jungle with and it'll be specifically about tracking down this Jaguar, which we just collared or put a GPS tra- tracking collar on last week. Two separate stories. And I hope they're released at kind of the same time and they have some impact because these guys are amazing and they need kind of all the help and attention, I think, that they can get right now. I know a lot of things do and a lot of things are competing for everyone's attention, but it would be great to get them just a little extra. Interesting. I find your background quite fascinating and the fact that you grew up in, in D.C., Washington, D.C. And did you always know you wanted to go down this route? I had no clue. I had no clue, you know? Yeah, I grew up in kind of a bubble in D.C. You know, a lot of the kids, a lot of my friends ended up kind of business school or economics, lawyers, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of the, these were the routes that I was looking at myself. You know, I studied economics. I was going to kind of most likely end up, you know, working in one of the 
And I did for a long time work in, in one of the large kind of Bretton Woods institutions like World Bank or IDB or IMF or something like that. But I'm, I can tell you, I'm, I'm really happy I chose uh, the route that I did. Better than sitting behind a desk, I can tell you that. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. You have some amazing photos that you published and some stuff that you've done when you're in Ethiopia and other areas. Are you planning on posting a lot more photos as you get through some of these projects? And is there where, I mean, because we're running out of time, but, you know, it's such a critical subject and topic and what you're doing is so tremendous. Is there any places where listeners and people could go to and either you know, follow your work, to donate, to help support all these initiatives that you're working on? Sure. You can, you can go to my website, emilianoexplorer.com or emilianorupert.com. But I am putting together... I have plans for a book, which hopefully will come out next year, which is a collection of pictures. That's specifically to do... Speaking about Ethiopia with indigenous cultures and indigenous knowledge uh, and things we can learn about people who live in a very close relationship with, with the environment. There's some things we can learn from these people, and I've kind of been researching that, putting that together, taking pictures, writing some thoughts down, and hopefully that'll be out soon. But I'm not sure yet. We're still working on that one. You right. have a lot of tremendous travels and adventures. So it's going to be exciting to watch you know, some of these projects come to life and everything. I want to thank you so much, Emiliano. I know you're down in Mexico. You stepped out of the jungles for a bit. I'm just glad you had access to the internet with us to do the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. No, no, it's it great to, to speak to both of you. And, and no, it's, it's, it's an honor. Thank you. If, if there was like one or two causes that you feel need the most support or that you'd like to see more people kind of wake up to, donate, support in any which way, what would it be? Dear and near to my heart is, is always wildlife conservation, you know, because I mean, that is the cost. It doesn't matter which one of them it is, but, you know, through wildlife conservation, you're, you're also helping to conserve habitats, right? And a lot of us, most of the time, we live kind of outside of that environment. So we see pictures of the Amazon and we get burning and we get sad, but then we don't really feel it, right? But the reality is that we're so connected to the natural world and that our relationship with it, I think, has been a bit mischaracterized. That it's either we develop these huge giant civilizations with technology and we destroy the environment or we go back to like a nomadic lifestyle and there's none in between. And that's just not the case. So I think we can find a nice balance there and, and keep developing as a society, keep our objective of expanding human knowledge and going and still like safeguard like what we need, which is fresh air, fresh water, fresh forest to go to when we get tired of the cities and that can, that can help sustain our life. So any type of wildlife conservation is great. Any type of environmental conservation is great. I think without those things, everything else is kind of secondary, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's, that's the essential stuff. But we're, we'll get there. I think I'm, you know, especially after seeing so many of these projects, I'm pretty hopeful about it. I know like the news, a lot of the stories that come out about the natural world are uh, very alarming. There's still a lot of space for us to, to get back on track. Yeah, right? so everybody needs to give back, help support wildlife as much as they can, wherever they can right now. Yeah, and I, I tell people, I will tell people definitely to go to your website. I mean, that is amazing. I take a look at uh, some of the stuff that you have on there. And for a camera geek like myself to see the gear that you have, my friend, that is some great stuff. 
Uh, it's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. That's a, that we were probably looking at the, uh, at the 50 to, to 1000 Canon lens. We shot, uh, nomads, which was yeah. beautiful, but so heavy, so heavy. Yeah. And, and the fact that you carry your own gear and then you have somebody else carry the tripod. <laughs> I, I understand that. I get it. Believe me. <laughs> yeah. You got to protect the jewels, right? Exactly. It's so funny. Oh my God, Liliana, it was so nice having you on. I mean, good luck down there. The Jaguars, do you keep us posted? Because we would love to follow up with you when you wrap up this story of the success of these Jaguars. And we want to follow you on to the next journey. So we'll be be having you back and checking in with you on the next one. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being with us. Joey, thanks so much for another podcast. Liliana, it was awesome having you on. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.